Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here. Once again, hosted by myself, Andrew, uh, from the YouTube channel Andrewism, as we talk about whatever. And the whatever in question uh, is the second most populous country in the world and one potential vision for its future, drawn from its anti-colonial past. I'm speaking, of course, about India, a subcontinent from which I draw a good portion of my heritage, and uh, one that boasts over 9,000 years of recorded history and roughly 55,000 years of known human settlement. India is an incredibly diverse country, ethnically, linguistically, religiously, and otherwise. But unfortunately, it has suffered much of the same fate that the rest of the world has, fallen prey to the rapacious appetite of British colonialism. Now, historically, the Indian local economy was dependent upon the most productive and sustainable agriculture and horticulture and, of course, pottery and furniture making. Jewelry it was very well known for jewelry. In fact, um, Indian jewelry makers uh, ended up starting some very successful jewelry businesses when they um, were freed from indentureship in Trinidad. Um, they also got involved in, in leather work and a lot of other economic activities uh, in India. Um, but the basis of India has traditionally, historically, you know, for thousands of years, been textiles, different types of textiles. Each village had its spinners and carders and dyers and weavers who were, of course, at the heart of that village's economy. But an interesting outcome of British colonialism in India has been the flooding of India with the machine-made, inexpensive, mass-produced textiles from Lancashire during, you know, Britain's Industrial Revolution. The local textile artists were very quickly put out of business and village economies suffered very terribly. So, I mean, you know, we're, I think we're familiar with this sort of general story. Smaller uh, cottage industries uh, became overrun 
by, you know, mass production. And of course, I don't mean to sound like I'm entirely demonizing mass production. I'm just describing what has happened. Of course, mass production has had its many benefits in providing access to uh, resources and to products to many different people. But of course, it's also had its many drawbacks, including, you know, the sheer environmental impact, as well as the impact on people, um, you know, as Marx spoke about, of um, their alienation from the process of production as the um, industrial system uh, basically separated each step in the process of production to different workers. And so no one had a hand in the production of a product from start to finish. And of course, that that had significant social and I would also assume mental impact on the people. With, you know, that whole era of British economic imperialism happening in India, the changes that took place within a generation was so rapid, you know, your head would spin. That devolution of, you know, the Indian home economy was really a sight to behold. And another element of British uh, economic imperialism, British imperialism more broadly, was the introduction of British education under colonial rule in the 18th century. Um, when Lord Macaulay introduced the Indian Education Act in the British Parliament, um, he said, and I quote, a single shelf of a good European library was worth the whole native literature of India. Neither as a language of the law nor as a language of religion has a Sanskrit any particular claim to our engagement. We must do our best to form a class of persons, Indian in blood and color, but English in taste, in opinions, in morals, and in intellect. So the typical uh, racism, typical white man's burden, typical, you know, um, of course, this phrase was used in a North American, indigenous American context, but uh, I believe the phrase is taking the Indian out to the man. Yeah, kill the Indian, save the man. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So it's kind of interesting. It's a different type of Indian talking about there, but that sort of idea still applies. And really that sort of sentiment is something that has existed throughout the history of colonialism, something that you know is seen in all of Britain's former colonies. Because once this aim was put into parliament and pushed forward, it was pursued with the might of the British Raj. All the traditional schools that took place in different village communities were gradually replaced by colonial schools and universities. Of course, taking advantage of the caste and class system that was in place in India prior to their arrival, the British would have selected wealthier Indians to be sent to public schools, such as Eton and Haru and universities like Oxford and Cambridge. And those Indians, they, you know, they learned English poetry, English law, English customs, to the neglect of their own culture. You know, it's like, why read the classics of the Vedas when you have Shakespeare and the London Times. And so having been raised in that environment, having grown up, having basically their minds colonized from the crib, uh, they began to see their own cultures as backward, uncivilized, old-fashioned, regressive. And again, something you see all over the world. You saw it in the residential schools, you see it in the uh, schools in the Caribbean, you see it in schools in Africa, basically everywhere the colonizers went, um, they would take a generation, they would take generations of young people and they would develop that self-hatred, um, that disdain for their own culture by, you know, positioning 
um, their education, British education, as, you know, superior. In fact, during the process of decolonization, quote-unquote, um, of, you know, formal political independence for many of the former colonies of Britain, uh, particularly in the Caribbean, as that's where I'm most familiar, um, a lot of the people who became, you know, the first prime ministers of the country, the one that would establish the trajectory of the country for years or decades to come, um, thinking of people like Bustamante in Jamaica, uh, Eric Williams, Dr. Eric Williams in Trinidad Tobago, um, among others, basically all of the first prime ministers, basically every single Caribbean country, they had all been educated um, in English schools, in uh, English universities, in, well, in the prestige schools of their countries that didn't end up being flown out to Britain itself. And they basically became the rulers, became the leaders, um, were handed power over by the British to basically rule in their stead. Of course, with all the talk of finally independence, um, people got caught up in that energy of political independence and freedom from the control of the British after uh, all the decades and centuries of struggle. Uh, but unfortunately, it proved, I believe, to be a ruse as very little changed for the average person in the years post-political independence. Yeah, this is something that Fanon talks about um, in in the sort of Francophone context of like, even even in countries where you have like at where, you know, like the colonizers are throwing up actual revolutions, you get this class of like, like lawyers and intellectuals who are like have been educated like in imperialist powers or in sort of their schools who wind up as like the first generation of of post-independence leaders and those people like you know what whether they want to or not end up sort of like reflecting the sort of values and political positions of like of, of the former colonial powers and there's this whole sort of dynamic that like i i feel like i feel like this is the part of Fanon that people don't read very much but that's about how these leaders sort of like lose touch with it with the sort of like anti-colonial masses and how they sort of like wind up reincorporating their countries back into sort of colonialism yeah yeah that's really how you see that neo-colonial dynamic developing um and it's really it's hard to tell um retrospectively whether these leaders thought they were actually you know anti-colonial or if they knew that they were you know carrying on a particular legacy but i find that because Trinidad is only, um, only recently celebrated just last year, 60 years of independence. There are, of course, people who were alive prior to independence. And so you find a lot of the older generation, how, they, how some of them speak, particularly the more educated ones, how they carry themselves, how they dress, uh, the attitudes they espouse is very much like to get any kind of respect uh, in their time. They, you had to behave as a certain you had to present yourself as a certain you had to present yourself in a as approximate to Britishness as possible. The whole, you know, conversation of respectability politics and stuff. And so I have some understanding of what they had to go through and where they're coming from when they hold on to these perspectives still, because that's what they grew up in. Um, but it really is a shame that they've been holding back progress for so long now uh, because they still hold on to these deeply conservative, deeply religious, deeply reactionary ideas that were uh, just, you know, 
uh, they're just inculcated with in the education system and in the cultural zeitgeist of their time. I was just, when um, Mia was talking about Fanon, I was thinking as well about like, have you read a book called Beyond a Boundary by C.L.R. James, Andrew? I haven't because it's about cricket and I'm not too into (laughs) cricket. (laughs) But um, I know it's an iconic, I know it's an iconic read. I think he, yeah, he explains a lot of that very well. Um, I think if people could read it, even if they don't like cricket, I'm not a big cricket person, uh, but uh, it's certainly one of the best sports books I've read and maybe one of the best books. Uh, and he does yeah, a good job of explaining. See, did a lot of, he put out a lot of bangers in his time. Yeah, he did have some bangers. Highly recommended. Yeah. If you, yeah. If you don't want to read about cricket, he also talks about this in Nkrumah and the Ghana Revolution. Yeah. yeah but you do want to read about book. cricket. That is not about cricket. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It's more of an autobiography, like seen through the lens of his, his cricket, I think. But yeah, it, oh, that'd be cool because I I know he spent a lot of time. He grew up, of course, born and raised and stuff in Trinidad. So, I'd be interested to see um, sort of if he talks about his political development, how that arose in his time in Trinidad. Yeah, I think he does. It's been a while since I've read it, but I think he talks about like how he sort of saw himself constituted as colonial subject, like through his experiences interacting with British people. Uh, and one of the places where the terrains where he'd encountered them, I guess, was, was playing cricket. Because right, yes, of course, and yeah. of, you know, thankfully, uh, we've come to decimate them at their own game as usual. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true, yeah, yeah, and even like uh, in English cricket at some point, like we're getting really into cricket, which I know is a diversion, uh, but like. <laughs> they had rules where you could only have a certain number of international players playing for each English county. Uh, it's, it's extreme. Like if you look at how the empire constituted whiteness through sport and like who was allowed to play rugby, which is a touching sport and who was allowed to play cricket, which, which isn't normally a touching sport. Like it did. It, 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 it's racist as fuck. Um, yeah. I mean, of course yeah. there's, <laughs> there's a lot of racism <laughs> in sports history. Yeah. Sorry for the cricket diversion. Sorry, please continue. Ah, it's entirely fine. I see it's all Greek to me because I I don't know what any of those points or numbers or anything means. Um, There are too many many different types of cricket. I mean, I've had people try to explain to me before. It's just not my thing. Um, I know people who play it though. So, you know, good for them and all. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. 
and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But back to India, right? Uh, if there's one particular person in India's history that really represented this type of Western-educated, colonized subject, trying to be something bigger than that uh, kind of mentality, it was Jawaharlal Nehru, who became the first prime minister after independence. Nehru, of course, sought to promote the industrialization of India, not via a capitalist route, but by more of a centralized planning route, which is why if you look in the India, India's constitution, you will see that it refers to itself as a socialist country. Yeah, so um, weirdly, weirdly, if I'm remembering yeah. right, Nehru was like a he was like a Fabian socialist or something. Yeah, yeah. His inspiration <laughs> like came Fabian. His inspiration came from the intellectuals of the London School of Economics and the Fabian Society. So, yeah, he's quite the character. You see the sort of direction that he ended up putting the, the country in. I mean, even today, India, in many ways, continues to be ruled in the English way without English rulers. Um, just like in the Caribbean, continues to be ruled in the English way without English rulers. In Africa, uh, you know, the various countries have been ruled in their various colonizing powers way rather than in their own way without the colonizers' rulers. Without the colonizing rulers. Um, the industrialists, the intellectuals, the entrepreneurs, all of them are working with the government to see the salvation of India taking place in a subordination to the World Bank and the IMF and the GATT. Uh, you know, they see India as part of this global economy meant to submit and to serve to multinational corporations. Um, but of course, the people of India are not too pleased, and the people of India are suffering under the brunt of that. Um, 
after seeing the failures of, of course, the Congress party under Nehru and his daughter Indira Gandhi and her son Rajiv Gandhi, um, the poor continues to be poorer than ever. The middle classes uh, and turning towards, uh, should I say, certain directions. Um, and of course, as we've seen in the past few years, the farmers have been agitating uh, against the various pressures they've been placed under. Things kind of suck. And it was pretty much how uh, Mahatma Gandhi predicted that it would, because unlike Nehru and unlike other uh, Western educated thinkers of his time, um, Gandhi thought differently about what India's potential could be, what it looked like, and that's part of the reason they killed him. And I must preface this discussion of Gandhi's vision of a free India by noting, of course, that Gandhi himself was a very flawed person, um, you know, racist, sexist, um, pretty sure he assaulted somebody. He did some very... Um, Fucked up stuff to his niece. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'll just, let, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But I mean, that's not something you can put aside. So it's something to be cognizant of. But one of the aspects of um, his time on this planet um, had been his development of a sort of a vision of a free India, not as a nation state, but as a confederation of self-governance, self-reliant, self-employed people living in village communities deriving their right livelihood from the products of their homesteads. It would have been a sort of a bottom-up system where the power to decide what could be imported into or exported from the village, where economic and political power all remain in the hands of village assemblies, where people in these village assemblies, in these communities, would continue to live in relative harmony with their surroundings. With um, They would continue to weave their homespun clothes, eat their homegrown food, use their homemade goods, care for their animals, their forests and their lands, uh, take care of the fertility of the soil, enjoy the homegrown stories and epics of India and continue to build their temples and appreciate their various regional distinctive cultures. This was meant to be the system, the practice, the idea, the philosophy of Swadeshi, which is a conjunction of two Sanskrit words, Swa, which meaning self or own, and Desh, meaning country. Swadeshi as an adjective meaning of one's own country. According to the principle of Swadeshi, the idea is that whatever is made or produced in a village must be used first and foremost by the members of that village. So, I mean, there could be trading and collaboration between villages and communities, uh, but Gandhi thought it should be minimal, like a sort of an icing on the cake. Um, goods and services to him was something that should have been generated within the community. The things that needed to be used by the community should be created in that community. Another influential, perhaps the most influential aspect of Swadeshi and Swadeshi philosophy uh, took place in the early 20th century as a direct fallout to the decision of the British India government to partition Bengal. 
the use of Swadeshi goods, or the goods that are produced and made in India by India for Indians, and the boycott of foreign-made goods were among the two main objectives of the Swadeshi movement. And so the boycott resolution ended up being passed in Calcutta City Hall in August 7, 1904, um, boycotting the use of Manchester cloth and sold from Liverpool. In the district of Barisal, the masses adopted the message of boycotts of foreign-made goods, and the value of the British cloth sold there fell very rapidly. Various songs and cultural works ended up being produced in the time um, to sort of bolster the movement. At one point, 150,000 English cloths were burnt as part of the boycott. And the symbol of caddy spinners, the sort of tool that was used to weave cloth, to weave fibers to create, to create yarn uh, became a major force in the movement and in the representation of the movement i think i, I get what you're saying like we can all benefit from a little specialization and and the, the uh like improvements that that brings while still sort of acknowledging that autonomy is desirable yeah i think there needs to be some some balance between your know, autonomy and self-reliance and that kind of thing and also uh, collaboration. I think he goes a bit too much in that autonomy direction. But in the context of when these ideas are being developed, it's sort of understandable. Because um, in this time, you know, the self-reliance of the people is being vastly eroded. Uh, people being forced into, you know, cities. They've lost their livelihoods. Um, and they were there was a sort of a developing reliance in the global economy um, where Swadeshi proposes that, you know, India avoids economic dependence on external market forces that create these vulnerabilities in communities that end up, um, you know, really harming the members of that community. Swadeshi is meant to avoid the unhealthy and wasteful, environmentally destructive transportation of goods, um, between communities, avoiding the excessive emissions that that would cause, um, and promoting, of course, the development of a strong economic base to satisfy the needs of the community, to satisfy the uh, local production consumption. Swadeshi is kind of about both creating a self-reliant India and also creating self-reliant villages within India so that each village is a microcosm of the greater India, uh, a web of sort of a distributed, decentralized web of loosely interconnected communities. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. 
Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was boarded! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In a time where the British were promoting the centralized, industrialized, and mechanized modes of production, Gandhi was turning to the principle of decentralized, homegrown, and handcrafted modes of production. Uh, rather than mass production, production by the masses. I think there was also a spiritual component to the idea of Swadeshi because at the time Gandhi was not a fan of the idea that people were not using their hands uh, to produce the idea that, you know, everyone should be involved in some kind of um, trade or skill of some kind that utilizes their hands because of, you know, the whole spiritual component of using the body that you have uh, fully. And another aspect of the spirituality of Swadeshi was, of course, the idea of this locally based community enhancing a community spirit, community relationships, and community well-being. Uh, an economy that actively encourages mutual aid, that encourages the principle of care between families, neighbors, animals, lands, forestry, natural resources for present and future generations. It's a direct confrontation of the driving force between mass production, which Gandhi saw as this cult of the individual, where there must be to expansion of the economy on a global scale uh, and expanded consumption and production for the sake of economic growth out of a desire for the individual's uh, personal whims 
for the, the desire for, you know, personal and corporate profit. Another reason, of course, that Gandhi rallied against uh, this idea of mass production and promoted instead production for the masses, by the masses, is because mass production lets people leave in their villages, their land, their crafts, and their homesteads to go work in factories, where they became cogs in a machine, standing in a conveyor belt, living in shanty towns, and dependent upon the mercy of the bosses. And of course... As those bosses uh, gained access to more efficient technologies because they were constantly in pursuit of greater productivity and thus greater profit, the masters of this economy, you know, they want more efficient machines working faster. And so they want less people working those machines. And so the result was that the people who had to move to these cities to work in these factories were eventually thrown out when they were no longer considered useful and Became and joined the millions of unemployed, you know, uh, rootless, jobless people in uh, Indian society. Swadeshi instead encourages the idea that the machine should not be something that subordinates the worker, but instead something that is subordinated to the worker. That it doesn't become the master, but instead it is mastered and allows us to orchestrate our own pace of, you know, human activity. It's not that Swadeshi is necessarily against automation, against technological uh, development, but it's more so that it aims to circumvent the harms that could be caused by such technologies being out of the control of the people themselves and in the control of the select private few. I think Swadeshi has a sort of an element of glorification of the past. Um, in doing my research for this episode, I ended up looking into, um, of course, the writings of proponents of Swadeshi um, and people discussing Gandhi's thoughts on the subject. And I'll just quote one particular passage. Swadeshi is the way to comprehensive peace. Peace with oneself, peace between peoples, and peace with nature. The global economy drives people toward high performance, high achievement, and high ambition for materialistic success. This results in stress, loss of meaning, loss of inner peace, loss of space for personal and family relationships, and loss of spiritual life. Gandhi realized that in the past, life in India was not only prosperous, but also conducive to philosophical and spiritual development. Sudeshi for Gandhi was a spiritual imperative. I think it's understandable that it decolonial project would attempt to develop uh, a pride in the history of the people who have gone through so much um, in, you know, their legacy and their traditions and their ideas. But I think it's a bit of a stretch to um, glorify uh, India's past in and pre-colonial past in such a respect. I don't think any uh, people's pre-colonial past should be excessively uh, glorified or... um, Like mythologized, do you mean? Mythologized, yeah. Romanticized. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good word, yeah. Because I I feel as though one that clouds our judgments um, and our critical eye for 
the aspects of you know past societies that do that do need to be challenged, do need to be changed. Um, I think that's part of my issue with Swadeshi is this idea that you know if things just go back to uh, these sorts of uh, villages and village communities that everything else would just be okay. But of course, there were other issues that India was dealing with even prior to colonization, you know, in terms of um, sexism, in terms of the control of the caste system and the higher castes. Um, and the other aspects of Indian society, that of course, were made um, more severe by British colonialism. Uh, colorism, I think, is one of those issues that of course existed prior to colonization, but was made worse by the British and their presence in the subcontinent. But I think striking that balance of uh, cleaning, learning from, respecting that um, that pre-colonial past, but also in our decolonial projects, not excessively romanticizing the past in an effort to progress towards the future. These days, I believe Swadeshi is most known for its focus on protect- protectionism, uh, its disdain for you know, foreign imports and investment, but it was, of course, a very wide spanning philosophy. It was a vision um, and a philosophy of life that Gandhi held for his entire life. And so I, it's not something that I was familiar with prior to looking into it and in my continued pursuit of uh, decolonial perspectives and explorations of various post-colonial projects but and philosophies, but it's something that I've appreciated despite my criticisms of some aspects of it. That's about all I have for you all today. You can find me on YouTube at andrewism on twitter.com slash underscore saint true and you can support me on patreon.com slash saint true if you're so inclined. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.